God, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone who agrees says, amen. At the end of a difficult section, in his letter to the Christians who are in Rome, Paul wrote these words. It's not the very end of his letter, but it's at the, at the end of a very difficult, difficult section. If you've ever read the book of Romans, you get to about chapter nine and you kind of sit there and go, what are we talking about? I mean, you talk about election and God's chosen people and God hardens and God softens and God shows compassion and you just sit there and go, okay, this is way too much. And imagine Paul trying to convey these deep, deep theological truths to a bunch of Christians in Rome and at the end of his attempt, being filled by the Holy Spirit and inspired to write these words, he then says this, listen to this. He says, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God how unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor and who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever, amen. It's as if Paul is sitting there going, what I just wrote, it is deep. Because we serve this God and we worship and, and, and follow this God that is just so beyond us. And so what do we do? We just come back to the fact he's beyond us. I don't get him. But think about it. When we pray, have you ever found yourself trying to give God advice? God, here's what I think you should do. God, you need to do this now or else this is what's going to happen. As if God's going, oh, I, didn't, I didn't think of that. I didn't have it on my calendar. My task list went blank. Thank you for the reminder, oh, little one. You ever felt like God needed your advice? You ever felt like, well, I've done all this for God, so God, you should repay me. Look how I've lived. I mean, I've, I've lived my whole life for you, God, and so because I've done that, shouldn't I get this in return? You ever found yourself thinking that, feeling that? And this isn't a slam. I think we all do it. You ever had the crisis hit? Notice that crisis never, they never knock on the door saying, is this a good time? Is this an okay time? And then the crisis hits and it's not changing and you're sitting there going, God, I've given my whole life. I've done everything I'm supposed to, so shouldn't you? It's like we, we try to convince God that he has to. All that Paul says is, Oh, the depths and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Wow, I don't get him. I don't understand him. See, I start with that passage because I think that that's what Matthew wants us to get as he starts his, as he starts his gospel account of Jesus. I wrote this in my notes. I described Matthew, the gospel written by the hated for the cherished. He's like, wait, 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 by the hated? It's written by the hated for the cherished. What do you mean by the hated? Well, you gotta remember who Matthew was before he came to be a follower of Jesus. He was a tax collector. He's like, oh, and then we start throwing out taxes and you're like, oh, I don't like the topic. And we, of course we don't like the topic. But he's a tax collector and yet he was highly intelligent. Tax collectors in that day had to be literate. They had to be able to speak the Greek language. He would have been a wealthy man, but here's the thing, the Jewish people, and Matthew was Jewish. So here's Matthew, a Jewish man working for the oppressive Roman Empire who is taxing his own people. And so Matthew is working for the quote unquote enemy to get money out of his own people. He was seen as a traitor. So not only was he a tax collector, but he was, he was a traitor, so hated even more. The reason that a lot of tax collectors were wealthy in that day was because of this. Rome didn't care what the tax collectors collected. So long as Rome got their share, the tax collectors could then say, well, this is in their minds, this is what they owe Rome. Let me add on another 20% and I can keep that for myself and I can put it in my bank. Guys, that's shady, yeah? They were hated. In fact, I, I read this uh, statement by J.D. Greer in his book called Gospel. He, when he describes it, he says, the Jewish Mishnah, which is the first major written collection of the Jewish oral traditions that are known as the oral Torah, said that tax collectors were so loathsome that they should not even be considered people. You were free to lie to tax collectors, it said, because lying to an animal was not a sin. 
Dang. <laughs> Friends, I'm begging you, please do not write a letter to the IRS with your name and address on it going, you are nothing but a bunch of, and then throw in your animal of choice, but make sure that it's appropriate. Guys, don't do that. But to them, it's like, you can lie to a tax collector. Why? Because they're an animal. It's not a sin to lie to an animal. Guys, they hated them. And then Jesus. Guys, you know the thing about Jesus is that he changes everything. Guys, tax collectors were so hated. Even in Luke chapter 15, when it describes what Jesus is doing, where he's sitting and he's having dinner, and it says with tax collectors and sinners. It's like there's sinners, which are everybody, and then there's the tax collectors. They are the worst of the worst. And then Jesus shows up one day with the invitation that would change his life and an invitation that was irresistible. Two little words, follow me. Friends, I believe that that's still the invitation that Jesus gives us today. I know that we think that a lot of times what he's actually just doing is just saying, hey, just raise a hand. You can just pray a prayer and then you can wait for heaven. And yet that's not what the scriptures say. The scriptures actually say the invitation is to become a follower of Jesus. And when you become a follower of Jesus and you say, yes, I surrender to his lordship, he gives you salvation, which is the gift. You don't accept salvation and then decide if you want to follow Jesus. It comes when you say yes to following Christ. Friends, this, in this moment, when Jesus sees this person who is hated more than anyone there, walks up and says, follow me, I guarantee that any disciples that are with him are looking at him going, are you kidding me? Especially Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot, the Zealot's job was to fight against Rome. Some were even trained assassins, get rid of them. Can you imagine Jesus going, Matthew, come here, follow me. And then a little bit later, looks at, hey, Simon, this guy, oh, I like his passion. Follow me. Hey, Simon, you should meet Matthew. He used to be a tax collector. You imagine Simon's going, I think I'll just uh, sharpen my knife. It's, it's like an awkward, it's, a, it's an awkward relationship. But isn't it just like Jesus to invite the people that you would never imagine that he would want? Or maybe we'll word it this way. How could Jesus ever invite the people that we wouldn't want? Right? I guarantee that some of the disciples were blown away, maybe even offended, that Jesus would invite this guy to come with them. And yet Jesus doesn't care what we think who deserves grace. He invites who he wants, but the invitation of Jesus is follow him. Well, who's the cherished? We gotta remember that Matthew's target audience was the people of Israel, it's the Jewish people. So when he's writing his letter, he's writing this gospel account, not letter, but his gospel account of the life of Jesus, he's not thinking, hey, one day, a bunch of Gentiles, non-Jewish people are gonna read this thing. He's sitting there going, this is all for the Jewish people. You can see it in the way that he words things. When you read Luke, you see that he's written to the Gentiles. Matthew's written to the, to the Jewish people. And each gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all had a specific purpose why they were writing. When you look at John, his purpose was to point out that Jesus is the Son of God. When you look at Luke, his purpose was to say that Jesus is the Son of Man. When you look at Mark, you see that he's saying that Jesus is the suffering servant. But when you get to Matthew, his ultimate purpose was to point out that Jesus is the sovereign king. Now, can you imagine as he's sitting there getting ready to write, pulls out the pen and goes, how do I start this thing? I know, this will be captivating. I'm gonna start with a list of people. I'm gonna start with the genealogy of Jesus because isn't that how you introduce yourselves? Isn't that what you do when you meet somebody? Hello, my name is, my name is Brian. My dad's name is Jim. His, name was, his dad's name was Dutch, and then I don't know anybody after that. But let's just pretend like we know the whole genealogy. I mean, this is how he starts it off. He's gonna go, this doesn't captivate anyone. Unless you stop long enough, you gaze into it, you look at the history, it's why it's so important to know the Old and the New Testament together. When you start looking at the characters that are in the family lineage of Jesus, you start to realize that there's a lot that Jesus is saying through this passage. So in verse one of chapter one, Matthew starts off this way. He says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. 
Notice that he starts it off by talking about Jesus. He then doesn't go Jesus to Joseph to whoever. He goes, Jesus, oh, and then we're gonna go back to, oh, he's the son of David and he's the son of Abraham. So there's this skip, but back to, and then we're gonna see that he moves forward again. But in this one verse, what do, we, what do we see that Matthew is saying about Jesus? The first is this, that he's the Christ. It says Jesus Christ. It's not his last name. It's a title. It means the anointed one. Guys, you gotta remember that from the book of Malachi, the end of the Old Covenant, the Old, Old Testament, to Matthew, the New Testament, there's a 400-year gap of God's silence. No prophet spoke. No dreams or visions were given, nothing. It's like God took off. For hundreds of years before that, the coming of the anointed one, the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Christ, people were waiting, anticipating for his coming because he's going to deliver us from this oppression. So Jesus' coming was, was, was something. The whole Jewish nation was sitting there going, when is he coming? When is he coming? He didn't give the specific date. And how many of you are sitting there going, God, when are you gonna come? Like right now, this is what I'm facing. When are you gonna step in? And you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting. And let me remind you this. God knows what's going on. God has already worked out the solution. That no matter how long we have to wait, God always is faithful. And friends, we may not like the waiting. Because guys, we don't even like to wait when there's no pressure. You, you ever notice you take a car in, you have to wait. And maybe you couldn't get a ride. So they put you in those seats that have no cushions. And there's like, there's a donut. And I'm like, I can't have donuts. I'm not allowed to have those anymore. All the joy in life is gone. Ever since this thing got all weird, can't do that. And then there's coffee. I don't drink coffee, so there's that drinking fountain that barely gets the water out. It's like this far. And since COVID, who wants to drink that thing? You're just there for an old change, like an hour, maybe an hour. You're just sitting there waiting. And we sit and go, how long do I have to wait? But it's different when we have to wait and it all hurts, Right? When you're waiting and nothing's changing and it, it hurts. And you ever notice how it just sits, it lingers and it keeps going and going. And can you imagine the people of Israel as they're being oppressed by the Roman Empire and they're just waiting, waiting. God, when are you coming? When's the Messiah coming? He's the Christ, Jesus, the Christ. He's also known as the son of David. The son of David is the title of the rightful heir to Israel's throne. In other words, that Jesus is the true sovereign king. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, the, Nathan, or the prophet Nathan, he's speaking God's word to David. And he says this, he says this, and your, and your house and your kingdom shall be, shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. You may sit and go, well, how's that point to Jesus? It doesn't mention the Christ. It doesn't mention the Messiah. But you'll see this, and we'll get into it in just a second. We'll come back to a passage in 2 Samuel chapter 7. But even in the very beginning, there's no way that one person can fill a throne forever. So the fulfillment of this, of this prophecy has to come to someone who can actually be king forever. And so even in that moment, it's like son of David. So the Messiah is going to be the son of David. And then he's given the name, the son of Abraham. In other words, this is how I interpret that part, that he's the fulfillment of God's promise. See, in Genesis chapter 12, verses one through three, God speaks these words to Abram and says this, go from your land, your relatives and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Show of hands, how many of you find that commandment to be terrifying? I want you to leave everyone and everything that you know and just go and I'll tell you where you're going as you get going. Who sits there and goes, I don't like that. Who are the planners in the, in, the, in the room? It's like, I have some check boxes here. He's like, pick up, leave everyone you know, just go and I'll tell you where you're going. He says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great and you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt and nothing and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now here's the problem. It's hard to make a great nation out of someone who doesn't have any kids. 
The Bible says that Sarah, or Sarai at the, moment, at the time, she was barren, unable. And the Bible says that Abraham was old. It kind of stinks. Abraham's old. He's advanced, she's advanced in years. I don't get it, but I know I do get it. So he, they can't have kids. It's impossible. And here comes God going, hey, here's the promise. I think, I think, I think Abraham at this time is about 75, which means that Sarai is about 65. I'm gonna make a great nation out of you. Guys, that phrase, I will, is mentioned six times in three verses. When you see God say, I will, connect that to God's promise. When God says, this is what I will do. This is what I will never do. You hold on to that promise no matter how you're feeling in the moment. So when God says that I will be with you to the very end of the age, what you hold on to is the promise that Jesus spoke. And even if I don't feel it, I know that the promise is true because God spoke it. When God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, no matter how I feel, I hold on to the promise that God gives to me. He will never leave me. Friends, emotions are not the dictator of our conduct. The promises of God are supposed to be that which we latch our lives and our souls onto. The promises of God, the scriptures, are the foundation for us as followers of Jesus. When emotions and experiences do not fit through the filter of what the Bible says, they don't fit, they go, they're contradictory to the scriptures. Those things do not matter. They're pushed to the side and we hold on to the foundation of the truths and the promises of the Bible. Six different times, I will, I will, I will, I will. And you remember that Abraham made it to about 99 and it hadn't happened yet. Guys, don't you wish that God was in just as much of a hurry as you were? You ever had to wait 25 years? He said, I don't, I don't know if I have. For some of you, you've just been agonizing and asking and it's not, it's not coming and I just need to promise you this. God knows what he's doing. When God makes a promise, he'll come through. You gotta trust him in his timing. Later on, a few chapters later in Genesis chapter 17, verses five and six, God says this, no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I've made you the father of a multitude of nations. In other words, I came through. I told you I would do this. It's weird, he only has one kid. He's like, I've done it. Multitude of nations, I've already done it. How can God say that it's one kid? Guys, you ever know, parents, you can have one kid. You ever notice it just, sometimes it just feels like a multitude. They're just consuming. If you got more than two, What's going on? What are you doing? Crazy, you got a ton of energy, or you don't, that's why you're so tired. But it's like, it just feels like this multitude come up against you. Guys, the only reason that God can say, I have done this is because God is not reacting to anything. What have I said? I say it over and over. Friends, he is unfolding what he's already done, and yet somehow lives and exists with us in time, and yet outside of time, he's sitting there going, it is finished. He says, I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. Gosh, not only are you gonna have a nation come from you, but kings are gonna come from you. And so from his titles of Christ, son of David and son of Abraham, we see that Jesus is the promised sovereign king. It's promised to David. There'll be a king that's established on your throne forever. It's promised to Abraham. Hey, out of you will come kings. The ultimate one pointing to the king of kings. Guys, that's just one verse. And then we jump into chapter one, verses two to 16. Now guys, instead of just reading through the names, what if we just kind of do this glance over of what I believe that it's actually trying to show us? What do we learn from this genealogy? The first is this, number one, Jesus is the divine sovereign king. The question is this, what is sovereignty? What does it mean to have sovereignty? What, is it, what does sovereign mean? 
Sovereignty invokes the political relationship of governance. And then we hear that and we go, oh, here we go. Again, I don't go in that political, I don't have the the political topics. I don't go with that direction. But the idea of sovereignty is just not within this. When we say that God is sovereign, we mean something. Here's what that word means. The sovereign has both authority and power. Has authority and power. So when you look and say that God, Jesus, has authority and power, that means that he is in charge. No one is above him. He has all power. No one can do anything that he doesn't want. God's sitting there going, I'm in charge. He's not sitting there going, man, I really hope all these people don't stand up against me because I can't handle it. Friends, he's in complete control. He's king. So he has all authority. He has all power. The sovereign creates laws by which the governed are ruled. So we look and we say laws are set up. Even if we're just thinking as, as citizens, laws are set up. Those who have sovereign, some type of sovereignty over us, they set up the laws of the land. Also, the sovereign implements those laws, saying, hey, this is what we're gonna put in place, and now we're gonna make sure that you follow them. So guys, when we look at God, if he has all power and all authority, he's the one that's set up, he's the one who's created and set up laws for us to follow, and then he implements those laws. We also have to remember this, that however, the sovereign doesn't act as a puppet master. I think we have this idea sometimes in our head God's just sitting in heaven and he's got eight and a half billion little, little puppets. That's all, they're all connected, all these strings hanging down onto the earth. He's just like, I love playing my game. This is something. He's like doing this little thing for all the angels. Wow, look at the play. God is so creative. Guys, in God's sovereignty is still our ability to disobey. Guys, he doesn't change us. He doesn't change people so that everyone will just get in line. He doesn't make everyone fall in love with him. Guys, wouldn't that be the easiest thing to do, to just make them love you? But is that really loving anyone? Is that, if, if you're forced to like someone, we have all experienced it. Remember when you were the kid, if you remember this, and there was play dates, and you had to go play with the friends, which really meant the moms were really great friends, and you better like them, and all of a sudden you became, some of you guys liked them, and others, it's like, I can't stand them, but you went through it. So you've gone through that side. But then if you're the parents, it's like, they're gonna be best friends forever. I know they're gonna be in each other's weddings. In fact, if it's a boy and a girl, it's like, we've already matched them. They're gonna be married one day. It's gonna be a beautiful day. You can't force people. We can't force people to like or to love us. It's a choice. True or false, there are some horrendous things that are happening in the world every single day. True. Does that mean that God is sitting there going, Do it. Yep, I've already planned it. You're gonna do it, you're gonna do it, you're gonna do it. No. Why does God allow it? I have no clue. Why doesn't he just get rid of all the bad people? Because then he'd get rid of everyone. It's God's kindness that keeps him slow. His desire is that all would come to repentance and that none would perish. He said, but it would be so much easier if he would just, I get that. It's like, oh, your scriptures, I mean, they got all these holy people in it. Okay, you gotta, you gotta realize how you're using the word and it's probably incorrectly. You're looking at the people going, they're all holy, meaning they're all doing perfect things. No, there's one perfect being in this book and the rest of them, jacked up. Just complete jacked up and just completely jacked up. A bunch of screw ups. And then God doesn't work in them. And you see these great things and then they make a mistake. And then he gets back, it's like this, there's this ebb and flow in relationship in this. I'm trying to live for God and then I make a mistake and I'm gonna keep going. And it's so beautiful because it's life. Guys, I love the fact that even the writers of the gospels, that Matthew would even paint, his, paint himself, paint the picture of himself in negative ways at times, telling the truth of how, of how sinful he was and is. Guys, I guarantee if you pick, any other, pick up any other religious writing, the person who wrote it who's involved in the story is always the perfect hero. Every single time. Except this one. The Bible portrays a bunch of people who've messed up and a sovereign God who is showing patience and kindness, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance because he's a good God. 
But even in, in, that, in that truth of God allowing us to make decisions that are sinful and against him, God still has the ability to harden hearts, to soften hearts. How do I know? Well, here's the thing. Those of you who are followers of Jesus, the only reason that you're following Jesus is because the Father drew you to Jesus. That's where it starts. It starts with him. He softened your heart. He gave you the faith necessary that you could actually believe in Jesus. He convicted you of sin that you would see that you need a savior. The Father drew you to Jesus so that you could come to know Christ. He softened your heart. And in others, maybe he's had to harden them. I always go back to the book of Exodus. Remember Pharaoh? There's at times where it says, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then all of a sudden you'll see that God, it says that, and God hardened his heart. How does that make sense, Brian? I don't know. Oh, the depths. Oh, the depths. Right? I don't get God, but I'm so glad you get it, God. Friends, nothing can stop the purposes of God. Job 42, verse 2 says this, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. As we continue to look at passages in the scriptures about the sovereignty of God, listen to these few. In 1 Chronicles 29, 11, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. In Psalm 115, verse three, our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. Listen to that for just a second and see whether or not this is something that needs to ring true in your soul. Oh, our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. He does all that he pleases. Anything he wants done, he does it. Friends, in the New Testament, speaking about Jesus, the writer of Hebrews in chapter one, verse three says this, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. In Colossians chapter 1, 15 to 17, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him, all things hold together. In Christ, he's before all things. Jesus is before everything existed. And in him, by him, all things hold together. Friends, the only reason that the universe just doesn't take off is because Jesus holds it together. Friends, the only reason that all nations have not just gone bonkers against one another is because Jesus holds all things together. The only reason our society and culture hasn't just gone off the deepest, deepest end is because Jesus holds all things together. Do you realize without Jesus holding all things together, think about it, if Jesus begins to pull back, things begin to unravel when people go, I'm not gonna obey, I'm not gonna listen, I'm gonna do what I want, I can set up my own standards, I can define things how I want, it unravels. There is no order. It all turns to chaos. When we sit and go, Jesus, you have set up commandments for me to obey that are for my good. Why? Because those commandments and your power hold all things together. For those of you who are law enforcement in the room, thank you. Thank you for what you do. And we need to keep praying because societies look different when people adhere to simply, if I just put into place the 10 commandments, if I just put into place the 10 commandments, that's it. How many of your jobs, law enforcement, police officers, your job would get a little bit more, more boring because no one's killing each other, no one's murdering each other, nobody's stealing from each other. If we just did those two things, how would it look? And so when people say, there's no credence, there's nothing that the Bible does, there's nothing that Christianity brings, I said, they're going, are you kidding me? The only reason you say that is because you don't read it. You didn't, you've never died, you've never gotten into it, you've jumped, you haven't jumped into it, you haven't tried to eat any of it, you haven't digested any of it. 
When you just look objectively, if the whole world would apply 10 commandments for one year, it would look completely different, true? So how does this apply? How do we take the genealogy and we take that statement that I just gave that Jesus is the divine sovereign king well, friends, we start to look at some of the people that are involved in this. We look at people that are listed here. Abraham and Sarah, they weren't able to have kids. Isaac and Rebekah had the same problem. Wars and battles occurred, and God kept alive those he needed alive to keep the family lineage of Jesus continuing. He moved people where he wanted them, when he wanted them to be. Guys, we just looked at the book of Ruth. Ruth's first husband died which led her to marrying Boaz. Boaz is in, the, is in the, the legal lineage of Jesus. Jesus was chosen as king, even though he was the youngest of all of his brothers. And during the Babylonian exile, God kept the family line of Jesus intact. Where do we get the Babylonian exile? Because when you look here, chapter one, verse 11, You'll see, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers, I nailed that one, and at the time of the de deportation to Babylon. And then all the names listed from 12 to 16 are connected to the deportation of Babylon. God is, in, is, God is involved in all of human history. He's involved. God is sovereign. He's the sovereign commander over all of human history. In the eternality of God and his existence, God is simply unfolding his plan. And so we see that Jesus is the divine sovereign king. The second thing that we see from the genealogy is this. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's gracious promise. Jesus is the fulfillment, the fulfillment of God's gracious promise. The word grace means unmerited favor. It means getting something that I don't deserve. Question, do you actually believe that you are in need of God's grace? Do you actually believe that you're in need of God? Like you need it. Or is it a good addition to your life? Because we're all pretty good people, right? You're a good person, I'm a good person, and we define that by what? Well, I'm not like that dude. I'm not like her. So long as I'm better than that guy, then I'm good. But if God is the God of goodness and God is the, good, God, is the God who is righteous overall, then is God not the standard? And so me, standing before this holy, perfect, righteous God, I am not good. Guys, that's why grace is so amazing. There's a reason that that song has impacted generation after generation after generation. That if I just begin two words, amazing grace, and we all sit there and go, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. We all get it. There's something about the grace of God, and especially when we remember that those words were penned by a man who before Jesus was making sure that people of other, of other races, he was, taking, he was taking Africans and he was making sure he's selling them into slavery. This is his story, and it should be told. It should never be silenced because the redemption that he experienced is even sweeter because we hear about what he was like before Jesus and then he comes to know Christ and then becomes a pastor, an abolitionist, and a key figure in standing against that atrocity of slavery. Friends, our mishaps, our sin before Jesus, our sinful lives before Jesus Friends, they should never be hidden. They're part of the tapestry of this amazing grace. Do we actually believe that we're in need of God's grace? Guys, I think it's, I think it's, so, it's so important for us to understand this. When we accept our total depravity, our sinfulness, we can then receive God's unmerited favor. If I sit there and go, I'm not that bad, then I'm sitting there, God, I don't need all of your grace. But if I sit in the week before God go, I got nothing. I am horrible. I'm a sinner. I got nothing to offer you. I'm a sinner without Jesus. I got nothing. So because I, I have nothing and because I'm so sinful, God, I want all of your grace. I want it all. 
That's why it's so beautiful to paint the picture that we're sinners before a holy God. It's beautiful. It's wonderful because of grace. It really is amazing. I read this quote by two authors, Brandon Ellis and Jessica Parks. They said this, God's grace flows out of his inter-Trinitarian gift-giving life. I like that phrase, gift-giving. I know that God gives good gifts, but I've just never thought of his gift-giving, his gift-giving life. That God actually loves to give gifts. He goes on and says, even in humanity's fallen state, God freely grants to his creatures good things they do not deserve. The greatest of these goods is Jesus Christ. And so we move from God's grace to God's promise. You go back to Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, where he says six different times to Abraham, I will, I will, I will. At the end of verse 3, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Friends, that last statement is a messianic prophecy. All the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. But how does this apply to the genealogy? This idea of this graciousness of God, how's it come from it? I wrote this in my notes. Because the family tree of Jesus has splinters and broken branches. The family tree of Jesus has splinters and broken branches. How do I know? Abraham was a liar. Jacob was deceptive. Tamar, Tamar was deceptive. She deceptively enticed her father-in-law to have sex with her when he thought he was having sex with a temple prostitute of a pagan god. That's, that's weird. He's going off worshiping some pagan god going, I want to have sex with that temple prostitute because that is for me. This is how I'm going to worship this pagan god. And it's his daughter-in-law who tricked him. Guys, they're both in need of grace. True? Rahab was a prostitute in Jericho. Ruth was a Moabitess. Guys, the Moabites were not allowed into the temple courts. God says they will not enter my temple courts because of how they treated my people. David was a polygamist, a murderer, an adulterer. And depending on who you read, not just an adulterer, he may have been the one that took a full advantage of Bathsheba, where at no point she consented. Solomon, Guys, he might be the ultimate of all polygamists. He married 700 women, 700 wives. Gentlemen, have you ever forgotten your wife's birthday? Anniversary? Can you imagine keeping track of 700? And 300 concubines, as if 700 wasn't enough. 300 concubines. Solomon supposedly started out really well. And then he falls off. He actually built up temples to where the people of Israel could practice idolatry and worship all the gods of these foreign women. Manasseh, oh, good night. This guy was evil among evil. It's like he looked at all the things, all the evil kings before him was like, I can do better. Guys, he even made sure that Molech was worshiped within Israel. Molech, that's the god, that's the, that's the idol that would be golden hot and you place your baby in it and let it fry, let it die. That was worship to this false god. Manasseh said it'll happen here in Israel. And then Manasseh repents. And he comes to be a follower of God, of Yahweh. Guys, there were kings who followed God and others who rebelled. There were kings who started off well with God, but later forgot him. There were kings who started and finished horribly. Guys, this is the lineage of the Messiah. And we are just like them. We are in need of the grace of God because we're no better. In Romans chapter 3, verses 23 to 26, for we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented him as the mercy seat by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him to demonstrate, speaking about Jesus, God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. We've all messed up. 
We're all saved by the same grace. We're all justified by the same grace. And so we see that Jesus is the divine sovereign king and we see that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's gracious promise. And we end with this third one. The promised king came for the world. The promised king came for the world. How do you know? Guys, in this lineage, we have mentioned Jews and Gentiles, men and women. Women especially, listen to this. It was so rare for a woman to be included in the family lineage of anyone, in the genealogy of any person, to be mentioned. Why? Because in that day, women were not seen as equal In fact, rabbis would actually often teach and say these words out loud. I want to thank God that I'm not a Gentile nor a woman. You know why that changed? Jesus. Guys, women's rights, it's a biblical topic. It's a biblical truth. It came because of what the scriptures have done and how the scriptures have impacted the world. I love the fact that there are four that are mentioned in that whole list, whether male or female, a lot of them, well, all of them had baggage. All of them made mistakes. Some experienced oppression. Some experienced what it felt like to be abandoned. And yet they're kept in this lineage. Jews and Gentiles, men and women, guys, from the very beginning of the book of Matthew, it's as if Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is trying to get our attention. God is about the nations. He's about the nations. He's not just about our city. He's not just about our nation. He's for the nations. Guys, in Galatians chapter 3, 28 and 29, Paul writes this, he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And you sit there and go, so there, wait, there's no such thing as Jew or Greek or slave or free or male or female, like those categories don't matter? No, what he's saying is those things that divide, so within a church community, the things that could divide, they don't exist. You don't start off with, hey, you man or woman, doesn't matter, you're a follower of Jesus. Be a follower of Jesus. That's where it starts, follower of Jesus. Brian, you're white, I know. Pretty obvious. I'm a freckle-faced white guy. I don't start there. I don't start with Caucasian. I don't start with where my ancestors came from. I start with follower of Jesus. My identity starts with that. It doesn't mean that I don't accept, hey, this is part of my background. I can celebrate this. Why? Because around the throne room in the book of Revelation, it says that all peoples of different tongues and different nationalities on all people groups are surrounding Jesus in worship. The only reason that John knew that when he was watching it because he could see it and hear it. Followers of Jesus, we show what racial reconciliation looks like. Not by only stating how different the races are. Rather by unifying them to the gospel, unifying them to Jesus. There's no, there's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female. Don't jump on a side. Just be on one side, Jesus. It's just Jesus. And we can look at all these extra things that we got to fix this and fix this and fix this until people are reconciled to Jesus, those things don't change. It doesn't happen. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, Jesus is heir of a line in which flows the blood of the harlot Rahab and of the rustic Ruth. He is akin, listen, to the fallen and to the lowly, and he will show his love even to the poorest and most obscure. Oh, isn't that beautiful news? But can I challenge you not to think of those people when you read that list, but to praise God that you also and I are included in that list. And then we close up in Matthew chapter one, verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. 
and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, friends, if you actually look at the, the true genealogy of Jesus, you realize there's more than just these 42 generations. There's more. And Matthew, it's not like he lied. It was very common in that day for anyone as they're writing out the genealogy, just kind of skip certain ones. Like, well, that was not, that's not important. That one's not as important. And they just kind of make their list. Remember, Matthew's writing with a purpose. And so he's doing what pretty much everyone did as they explained the genealogies. You'll also notice that the, math, the genealogy in Matthew is different than the genealogy in Luke. This is where a lot of people go, see, they're not the same. They're not the same. They're saying two different things. But here's the thing. Luke, his genealogy is the bloodline of Jesus, while Matthew is the legal line of Jesus. Matthew is pointing us to Jesus as king. Luke is saying, here's the bloodline of Jesus all the way back to Adam. Matthew's writing with a purpose. He's gonna take us back to David and to Abraham in the legal lineage of the Messiah who was to be the king. It starts with Abraham because that's where it was, that's where it was promised. From you, will come, from you will come kings. David, I'm gonna set up your throne forever. But what are we supposed to get from 14, 14, 14? Guys, I'm not saying this is it, but I've, I read this in different commentaries throughout the week. There's this term, gematria, gematria, gematria. Either, either one, it's all spelled one way, but you might say it differently, however you are. Now, guys, I don't know that I jump into this, but I thought, hey, this is kind of fascinating. But it's actually, it's legitimate. It's, a, it's a, rabbinic, a rabbinic literary device that used the numeric values of the letters of Hebrew or a Greek alphabet to communicate a message. So if you take David's name in the Hebrew, his name consists of three letters. The first, Dalet, with a, with a value of four. This all the math people are like, oh, finally. Dalet, value of four. Vav, with a value of six. And back to Dalet, value of four. And you come up with 14. It's possible that right in this moment, as Matthew's going, hey, from this place to this, 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations, Jesus Christ, son of Abraham, son of David, 14, 14, David, 14, 14, 14, David, 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 here's your Messiah. From the very first chapter, he's going, I'm gonna talk about the one that you've been waiting for for so long, and this one is king. From the first chapter, chapter in a genealogy God is declaring to us the king is here guys this is mind blowing God's word is powerful and effective it accomplishes everything that God wants it to accomplish when it goes out I love the fact that in the lineage, the legal lineage of Jesus, I love that men are represented and women are, men, women are mentioned and represented. And I love that it's a list of all a bunch of messed up sinful people, all needing grace, just like us. Gentlemen, you have a place in this community to impact and to use the spiritual gifts that you have been given to impact this community. Women, you have a place in this community to use your spiritual gifts to impact this community. And then we've all been called to go out and to impact people around us with the gospel and the gospel that points to the fact that Jesus is king. As we start to close down, and maybe just read these couple quotes. The worship team can come back up. David Platt, in a book titled Exalting Jesus in Matthew, he first said this, history revolves around a king who would come a king who now has come. Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, is the center of it all. But then he goes on to say this. You are not the center of history. I am not the center of history. Our generation is not at the center of history. The United States of America is not at the center of history. Billions of people have come and billions have gone. Empires have come and empires have gone. Countries, nations, kings, queens, presidents, dictators, and rulers have all come and gone. And at the center of it all stands one person, Jesus the Christ. He is the bold claim of Matthew's gospel. And if this Jesus is the king of all history, then it follows that he should be the king of your life. When you realize his rule and submit to his reign, it changes everything about 
about how you live everything. I'm not the center of history. You're not the center of history. Jesus is the center of history. Guys, think about it. If Jesus was not God, he's nothing more than this person that a bunch of people set up a bunch of myths. And how is it that the guy that grew up in a 40 square acre town of Nazareth has changed the world and still changes the world that people who come to Christ now, that their lives are changed. And some of you say, I've met some Christians that are mean. Maybe they're having a bad day just like you. Or maybe they just claim the name Christian but don't really follow Christ. Before just taking it at face value, here's what my challenge to you is. Read the book first before you declare Jesus to be guilty of anything that you think that he's done wrong. Read the book. And after you've read the book, let's talk because I wanna introduce you to Jesus that you can surrender to him because I'm convinced if you just spend time with God and you read his word, he's going to draw you in. And when you come to Jesus, I will celebrate with you. A Wendy's Frosty is on me. Can we all stand as I read this last part at Revelation chapter 19? Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse, the one sitting on it called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. God, we love you and we thank you, Jesus. We thank you that you are sovereign King. And in this moment as we close in this last song, this last option and opportunity to sing to you, God, I pray that you're pleased. I pray that you're pleased, Jesus, we love you. And so in this moment, we continue to say to you be all the praise, all the glory, and all the honor for you alone are worthy. And we pray this in Jesus' name and everyone who agrees says amen. Love you more than you know. That's worship.